get your Bible or grab one from in front of you and turn to the book of Esther. Find that just a little bit before the middle of your Bible, a little bit before Psalms. And Esther began with this story of a king throwing a great feast and decreeing that people are supposed to drink as much as they want and have all sorts of fun. And he had all of his generals and nobles probably was preparing to go out and try and conquer uh, more territory. And at the end of this party, he thought, oh, what a great idea it would be to call the queen and bring her in so that everybody could admire how beautiful she is. And of course, the queen was not so thrilled about getting a request from a rather inebriated king um, with all of his drunk nobles to come and be paraded. And she said, no. And so this generated a crisis in the kingdom because when the king says it just happens, because the king is like a god, and sometimes we like to think we're like gods and everything that we want to happen should also happen. And if it doesn't, we say, well, who do I pound on? Who do I beat up in order so that they'll do what I want them to do? Well, the king decrees the queen must be banished. And of course, he has to go even further because you, you can't just punish the offender. You have to punish everyone else too. And so he says, also, let it be known that all of the men are heads of their households and all the women should listen to them. You can already appreciate the profile of the king here. Well, he goes off and fights his wars and then he comes back and the wars didn't go so well for him. And he comes back and he's sitting there and he remembers the queen and he's like, man, maybe it wasn't so unreasonable. I don't know what his exact thoughts were, but... He remembers the queen, and so his advisors say, "Uh uh-oh, we can't have the king unhappy or reminiscing. So they have a beauty contest. They forcibly take whoever looks beautiful and is young and drag them in, and whichever one pleases the king the most will become the queen. Well, who should be chosen but a young woman named Esther? And as chapter 2 comes to an end, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, Um, here's a plot about the king or someone trying to kill the king and Esther makes this known to the king. And so this all-powerful king, in a sense, owes his life to Esther and to Mordecai. Which brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 would be another couple years along in the process. Esther has been the queen probably for about four years now and... We pick up the story there. Let's read Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. 
But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written for the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, I pray that you would use it in our hearts and lives for our good and for your glory, and that your spirit would be present to help us to understand And not simply to understand, but to live out your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From 1942 to 1944, approximately 15,000 children and young people passed through Terezin, a concentration camp about three miles north of Prague in the Czech Republic. And they passed through because they would be there for a while until they were called for transport, and then generally they would be taken to Auschwitz. And of the 15,000 children and others that passed through, about 100 of them survived. In a sense, those that were in power made a decree. For the Jews, throughout that area, and indeed throughout Germany and many other places, the decree was made they should be destroyed, annihilated, be gone. And the tragedy of that echoes countless human tragedies where kings, 
either out of their own arrogance or their own foolishness or in this case, their own apathy, said, yeah, let God's people be destroyed. May it be so. Take my ring. Not a big deal to me. Kill him off. You appreciate the darkness of the human heart and the scope of the battle and that the devil seeks to destroy those that love and serve God. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that the devil is after God's people or God's church. It's that the devil is after God's promises. And even as Esther doesn't even mention God, what is at stake in this is God's promise. Because if the Jews are annihilated and wiped out, all of those promises that were made in Genesis that a Messiah would come, that were reiterated to David and to the other kings that a Redeemer will come. Well, if there are no people left to redeem, you don't need a Redeemer. And if there are no people left to redeem, there's nobody from the family line of David to rise up and be that Redeemer because everyone is dead. And so make no mistake that what is at stake are the promises of God. And even as we think of the promises of God, we are reminded that those promises for us sometimes, from an earthly perspective, also seem in doubt. We can look at headlines, we can see wickedness, and we cry out, how long? And sometimes we wonder, are these promises even true for me? Will they be true for another generation should the Lord tarry? Sometimes it's easy to look at culture and to despair and say, how much worse could it get? How much more could we as a culture devalue life? And say that, especially for the vulnerable, it does not matter. But God's promises are true. In spite of the enmity. And we see that laid out in our text. There's an enmity. There's an enemy of the Jews. Haman is his name. And so as we think of God's promises, I want to start with the people here. Who are the people? Well, Haman is an Agagite. The Agagites were the ruling class or the royalty of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, they had shown up in history about 600 or more years previous. And there was a king. His name was Agag, as a matter of fact. And the Amalekites were singled out for specific judgment. Why? Because they loved to destroy the vulnerable. So Haman, he's got a great family heritage, right? What did the Amalekites do? What was their plan of attacking the Israelites? Well, their plan was they would pick off the stragglers. 
They would pick off the weakest of the weak and destroy them. That's who they wanted to fight against. And you, you think to yourself, it is one thing for a soldier to be a man and to go face to face against an equal. It's one thing for a general to have a strategy on how we're going to overcome and destroy the enemy. It is quite another sort of evil that says our strategy is to find the weakest and the children and the women and the elderly and we're going to pick them off first. But that was the Amalekite strategy. And they were set up even 600 years ago. There was enmity. They were the sworn enemies. If you are a Vikings fan, they were the Packers. They were the worst. And so Haman, I don't know how much more we really need to know about him other than he hated the Jews. Now Mordecai, he's another person in the story, and we haven't heard that much about him other than he's always been kind of hovering around. From the beginning of the story, he's hovering around, and now his character is developed in front of us. And I appreciate the way stories do character development. So he's there at the king's gate where he hovers, his job making sure that the queen is okay, this point, he's been doing this for years on end, right? Probably is a, a fixture, if you will. Everybody knows him. They chat in the morning. Hey, how are you doing? Um, talk about the weather or whatever they did back then. And so the officials of the king, they start to notice a pattern. Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. Hmm. Well, and Mordecai, you can appreciate his baggage. Am I going to bow down to an Amalekite, the sworn enemy of my people? I don't think so. But one of the reasons that Mordecai gives for why he doesn't bow down is that he is a Jew. Well, what does that have to do with it? It has everything to do with it. Because Jews, their allegiance was given to God and not to earthly rulers. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't obey earthly rulers or submit to earthly rulers. But I want us to appreciate that certainly there were overtones of worship that existed here. Like, the, the king was, was a god. And Haman certainly wanted to be a god. He wanted to be somebody who was treated like a god. And no matter how cheap gods come these days, or they came back then, Mordecai, certainly in his own mind, said, I'm not going to bow down. Now, whether he did this in a in-your-face sort of way, where he got angry or, you know, um, stood up in opposition, or whether he did it like Gary... Gary got a HOA notice from his homeowners association that said he couldn't park his Rivian pickup truck in his driveway because it was a truck. And Gary was a very kind person, and he just responded, well, my neighbor has a Suburban that's bigger than my Rivian. What is the problem? And he was, I hope, able to resolve the issue. Whether whether Mordecai was really nice and gracious about it or whether he was in your face, I won't do it. 
I, I don't know. We're not privileged to that story. But whatever the case, the battle lines are drawn among the people. Haman, representing the kingdom of darkness, and Mordecai, representing the promises of God. Well, the story progresses. We see in verse 6, Haman says, I can't just get rid of my enemy. And you appreciate the, the strategy Haman was well steeped in. He learned it from the king. The king said, I can't just get rid of Vashti. I have to make decrees for, throughout all of the kingdom about men and women. Haman said, I can't just get rid of Mordecai. And truth be told, he probably could have easily done so. It would not have been a big ask for Haman to go to the king and say, listen, there's a guy who's really, he's breaking the king's commands. He's obnoxious. I hate him. Can I hang him? The king would probably be like, one guy in my kingdom? Like, that's a drop in the bucket. I don't really care. And, I mean, we've already gotten that sense that the king doesn't care, right? He doesn't care about people. If you look in the psychological profiling manual and look under the category narcissist, there's the picture of this king right there. He doesn't care. But no, Haman says, I've got to do better. I'm not only going to punish the guy who's doing wrong to me, I'm going to punish a whole bunch of other people too because I hate them all. And finally I've got the chance. Well, the first problem for Haman is, well, what do I do? When do I go? And so he starts casting lots. There's a sense of superstition. Haman is a very religious person. Maybe he doesn't worship the true God, but he's religious. He's looking for the right time. And so he keeps casting lots, and apparently somehow it comes up. Now's the time to go to the king. Now's the time that it's going to happen. And so he goes to the king and he presents the problem. He says, oh king, there's a problem in your realm you probably haven't heard about. And honestly, it's not that big a deal. But let me tell you about it. There's a group of people and they're scattered throughout your realm. They're not united. They couldn't really put forth a united front to wipe you out. But they're a problem. And here's why. Their religious beliefs are different than everyone else's. And he's right. I mean, then most of the religions, you could have as many gods as you wanted. And, oh, there's a new god? Let's add it. I mean, it's kind of convenient. You can, you can go to worship at every place. Right? Why be exclusive with your gods? If one god can help you here, certainly having two gods on your side would be better. Three? Bonus! You got a hundred gods on your side? You're going to be blessed. But they're kind of exclusive people, king. And they don't blend in with all of the idolatry in your kingdom. And this is of concern because they're really rebels. And of course, as all good arguments that are a lie do, they mix truth with the lie. The truth, their allegiance is to God and to God alone. The lie, that they're rebels. What's the evidence for the rebellion? Uh, Mordecai won't bow down to me, O king. 
Is there any other discord in the kingdom that you could share? Not really, no. Actually, throughout the years, many of these people have been trusted advisors of kings. And just so you know, O king, you go back up the ladder and there have been incidents like this before. Daniel, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the issue has been around worship. It hasn't been around other things. They haven't led a military uprising. But no, you have to make the threat greater than it is. The devil always mixes the truth with a lie. That's why we buy it. Is it, is it not true that the devil's lies today are, are mixed with some truth? Is it not true that the, the greatest lie that self-fulfillment can be yours with Jesus sprinkled on top? Oh yeah, you can have Jesus, no problem. But don't let Jesus interfere with you getting what you want. So Haman presents the problem. These, these rebels. And I often wonder, are Christians seen that way in our culture today? Maybe we don't think of idols in terms of statues and things as they would have then, or even as kings, although certainly our politicians present themselves as idols. And certainly they want your allegiance. And certainly they feel free if you do not give allegiance to them to try and pass laws or rules that go against what you believe. That happens at times. But I wonder, do, do we stand out as being people who have a different allegiance? A, a different God? Well, he goes on, here's the problem, king. And then he has a plot. And as they say, everybody who wants to win a war has a strategy. And so what's his strategy? Well, we'll kill them all. And I appreciate in order to implement the strategy, in order to make the plot work, he says, here's what I'll do, O king. I'll foot the bill. Like, you know, I'm such a good guy. I would not want you burdened. Um, modern equivalent, he's offering the king $300 million. Now, maybe money isn't worth much these days. And certainly the, the Powerball goes far above that. But $300 million is a chunk of change. And it's likely that Haman believes that he'll recover his money when he loots and kills the Jews. But whatever the case, he says, I don't, I don't want to burden you, O king. I'll make it easy for you. Just place it in my capable hands. I'm a good guy. I mean, over the last four years, haven't I been great to you, O king? Like, you've trusted me. Haven't I kept the peace? Haven't I made things work well for you? And he makes the sale. The king is like, oh, this is, you know, kind of like um, you and I might think of our car breaking down. 
and somebody's saying, ah, oh, let me fix your car for you. I'll take care of it. You say, oh, great. Thank you. Here's my MasterCard. I trust you. You're a good friend. You've been there for me. You've identified a little problem in the kingdom. Take the MasterCard. Make it right. Take care of it for me. The plot is financially beneficial for the king, even. And it's highly vindictive. Haman doesn't share with the king. My people have wanted to kill these people for 600 years. And this is my shot. The fruits of the Spirit are not anger, hate, frustration, holding on to history, taking advantage of power when you have it. And as the king hands over the ring to Haman and says, do as you please, Haman makes the decree, wipe them all out. Steal all their stuff. And I appreciate how smart Haman is. Like, how many otherwise law-abiding citizens take the opportunity to steal something if the opportunity comes and the chances of being caught are almost zero? And how much better when the government and the police department gives you the address and says, by the way, we're encouraging you to steal. How many otherwise law-abiding citizens would say, oh, did you hear the news? That on Sunday at Walmart, the doors will be open, no employees will be present, no law enforcement will be present, and we can loot the entire store and we're guaranteed immunity. And we can take whatever we want, as much as we want. And if anyone tries to stop us, we can kill them, and we are guaranteed immunity from that crime too. I think that maybe some people would show up. It would be opportunity. And so Haman says we can set up a system that places everyone against their neighbors that are Jews. And maybe most people won't, but there are enough people that will. I don't need to tell you that being a Christian in many nations puts you in a really difficult place. Being a Christian in a Muslim-majority nation usually means that your access to resources is limited. It means that somebody committing a crime against you is far less likely to be prosecuted than you doing the same thing to them. So Haman sets this up. You can get rich by murdering somebody in your community. Kill them, their children, their wives, and take their stuff. Well, I think you could imagine what would happen in our culture if such a decree went forth. 
that you have the right to kill certain people in your neighborhood because of their ethnicity and to steal all of their stuff. I think that it would probably be a little bit more than just those particular people that were alarmed. (laughs) And so we see the city of Susa gets this decree and there's an uproar. Like, I mean, everyone is texting if it were a modern day world. Everyone is calling their friends. If you're a Jew, you're calling your fellow Jews. Did you hear this? If you're a neighbor to a Jew or have someone that you you love that's a Jew, do you know about this? It's coming. What are we to do? And the king and Haman, they sit down. You can almost just see it. The king says, oh, could you get me another beer? Haman says, bring on another beer. The king and Haman, as our text ends, are at the palace. And what are they doing as the city is in uproar? They're drinking. They're getting drunk. There is a calloused disregard for the chaos that has been created. And a calloused disregard for life. Because the devil doesn't care. The person whose only concern is their wealth and power and position and how they can advantage themselves, they don't care. And sometimes... If we're being honest, we don't care as much as we should either. Sometimes we just as soon forget that there is a battle in our hearts and in our world and in our community, our nation and our world against the powers of darkness and the powers of light. And sometimes it's easier to put our feet up and to turn on the TV and say, could you bring me another beer? And even as the, the picture of chapter 3 ends, we're left with that chaos. And Christians who love the Lord ask the question between the time where the king makes decrees and the Lord delivers, we're asked the question, how long? Because sometimes, even though we're privileged to have a greater story, and we know what does happen, or most of us do, we've read the rest of the story, and if you haven't, it'll get there. We, we know how it ends. But they didn't know how it was going to end. We know how the battle between darkness and light will end. We know that darkness has put, been put on notice through the work of Jesus Christ. 
We know that no matter how hard the enemy and darkness has tried through the years to wipe out the promises of God, they have stood. But sometimes in the midst of that battle, we wonder, how will deliverance come? And we look to the Lord in prayer. And we say, Lord, how will deliverance come? We know that He has, and we know that He will, but we still ask, how will deliverance come? And in times of peace, when it seems as if things are going well for the church and God's people, and to be honest, we live in such a time. We live in a time of peace where there is very little at stake for being a Christian. There is very little at stake for coming to worship. There is very little at stake from professing your faith in your work or in our world. Persecution for Americans in our time and place is almost zero. We have all of the privileges and advantages of almost everyone else in our culture, and in some cases, even more. And so it can be hard to identify even with the idea of the battle. And it can be easier to think, life's pretty good. And that was the mistake of the king. He was oblivious. He ignored it few million people, what does it matter to me? And so there is a warning in this text, do not be oblivious to the battle. Do not be as the author of the Hunger Games. For those of you that are familiar with the story, at the end of the last rendition of the Hunger Games, the book kind of ends with the idea well, maybe people have just evolved. (laughs) Maybe this won't happen again. That we kill people for sport. That darkness, maybe it won't be as dark. How naive is that? The darkness is there, but it is not overcome. And in your life, when you face that darkness... And when you're in that moment where you wonder, how will it be overcome? When you're in that moment where you look at the calloused hearts of others and sometimes even your own calloused heart, you can trust that God did not allow His promises to be diminished or destroyed then, and neither will He now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word and for your promise, and that even as there are battles between darkness and light in our world and in our time and place, we pray that you would enable us to be your faithful servants, that in the midst of darkness, we would continue to believe that your promises are yes and amen for us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.